Cardiovascular emergencies. We're going to talk about that, 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 and that, and that. Okay. Reducing cardiovascular deaths. How do we do that? Well, some things we could do, and it's not really done in a pre-hospital environment near to the point as it's done, uh, like say on the fire side. All, they've been doing fire safety education since the 40s. But we don't really get out on the EMS side a whole lot and do a lot of public education. But what are some things that we could do that's going to help reduce cardiovascular deaths? Learn CPR, know where your ADs are, things of that nature, right? Better public awareness, early access to EMS, increased number of people trained in CPR, um, recognition of the need for advanced life support ALS services, but again, keep in mind, no ALS in the world will ever work without good BLS first. And why is that? I made all y'all write it down last class. Because an acidotic heart will never beat. There's very few always and nevers in EMS, but that's definitely one of them. Um, and transportation to hospitals, a lot, everybody wants to specialize anymore. Not just doctors, but there's hospitals. And you have specialty care centers that are designated. Hospitals. Some of them specialize in trauma, some of them specialize in heart, some of them specialize with burn centers, what have you. But um, again, especially when you're talking about myocardial infarctions or a particular type of myocardial infarction, uh, uh, when I know we talked about it at least once, called a STEMI. They only need to go to hospitals that have catheterization labs, places where they can go in there and actually fix the problem. And we'll, What was that? That was your mama? Hold up. Okay. We start out every chapter with a little bit of anatomy and physiology review, right? The cardiovascular system consists of the heart, the blood vessels, the heart, the blood vessels, and the blood. That's the the pump, the pipes, and the fluid, correct? And it, and it is simple hydraulics. It really is. Myocardium, the medical uh, prefix or root word myo means what? Muscle. muscle. Cardi means what? Heart. Pretty easy to figure out, ain't it? Heart muscle. <clears throat> medical prefix peri means what? Cardi. Heart. So the pericardial sac is that thick fibrous membrane that encircles the heart, right? The visceral layer of the pericardium lies against the heart. Uh, again, that gives it that viscous quality to where it doesn't create a lot of friction every time the heart beats. And, uh, and that's it. And if, and if, and if any of this, if I'm going too fast, y'all please slow me down. Endo, what does it mean? So the endocardium is the inner lining of the chambers of the heart and the surface of the valves. What do atrium, the, the atrium do? They receive blood. What do the ventricles do? Pumps blood. Where does the right ventricle pump blood to? The lungs. The lungs. Via what? Pulmonary artery. 
pulmonary arteries. There's two of them. And then the left ventricle pumps blood where? Is systemic circulation. It's correct. And each time the heart pumps, it should eject how much blood? 70 About 70 milliliters, and we call that. And how can you tell if they don't have adequate stroke volume? If it was hard, I couldn't do it. All right, the valves of the heart, the atrioventricular valves and the semilunar valves. Where do you think the atrioventricular valves lie? Between the atrium and the ventricles, right? What's the one on the right called? Tricuspid. Tricus Why is it called the tricuspid valve? It has three little cusps, right? Well, actually like that. What's the one on the left called? Bicuspid. Or or Bishop's mitre or mitral. Why is it called the bicuspid valve? Has two. With that being said, the semilunar valves. The semilunar valve on the right side of the heart is called what? It's a pulmonic semilunar valve. The one on the left? Aortic valve. And why are they called semilunar valves? Like a half moon, right? If you were to cut the heart and look down them, it looks kind of like a half moon. Papillary muscles in the ventricles contract to tighten the chordae tendinae, and the chordae tendinae pull and manipulate what? The atrioventricular valves, the tricuspid and the bicuspid. Um, what page is that picture on? Yeah, you can look at uh, figure 18-2. You can see the chordae tendinae and the papillary muscles that are attached basically to the walls of the ventricles. And they are the ones that open and close the atrioventricular valves. And again, I'll ask, am I going too fast? There's the picture. Chris, trace a drop of blood through the human body for me. Start any way you want to. I'm going to make it easy for you. Don't know? Morgan. Rashad. Uh, any way you want to start. Not yet. Not yet. Austin, pick him up from right there. Brett. Michael. See? The right no, the right ventricle. Thank you. The pulmonic semilunar valve. Yes. To the lungs. That's it. Um, That's it. Ray Shaw, you want to try again? Pulmonary arteries. The pulmonary, mm -mm. pulmonary veins. Left atrium. Yep. 
not aorta, aorta right, right just to left left atrium. Which one? Uh, left atrium. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 50-50 shot. Left ventricle. Left ventricle. Uh, <coughs> the aortic. Mm-hmm. Aortic, aortic valve. Aorta. 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 Then, uh, then, 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 Still not the aortic, right? Mm-mm. Arteries, arteries. Hmm. Crystal. What's that? The arterioles. Crystal. Capillaries. Capillary beds. Capillary beds. Visuals, veins, inferior, superior, cava. All right. All right. Guys, y'all need to know that. I'm telling you, you need to know that. So work on that, and we're going to move on. All right, so coronary circulation. When we say coronary circulation, what are we talking about? Talking about blood that actually supplies the heart muscle itself, right? That's what the heart does. It ejects its blood and circulates it through the body to deliver oxygenated blood to all the organs and tissues in the body. But what does the heart feed with oxygenated blood first? Itself, okay? And it does that through your coronary circulation. The coronary arteries supply oxygen to the heart. You have two main coronary arteries. You've got one on the left and one on the right. What are they called? The left and right coronary arteries, yes. Y'all got to work with me a little bit now, come on. One's on the left, one's on the right. So the one on the left is called the left coronary artery and the one on the right is called the right coronary artery. Now, the left coronary artery bifurcates into two main branches. And one branch goes down the front of the left ventricle. And we call that one the anterior descending. The LAD, you'll hear that called a lot of times. Left anterior descending branch and the one goes around the back of the heart. Circumflex, circumflex branch, that's correct. Now how bad do you think it is if that left coronary artery gets blocked prior to the bifurcation? What we call them, they're called widow makers, right? Most of them people don't make it. They don't make it to the ED, or if they do, they're very lucky to get there. You know, those are the ones where the, where the paramedic looks at the 12 lead EKG and there's elevation in every lead, okay? It's just all over the place. And um, so anyhow, because the left, uh, those two branches uh, provide blood to most of the left ventricle. And that's where the majority of the work that the heart's doing, that's where it's performed, right? In that left ventricle. And there's a picture of it. Arteries transport, transport blood through the body. And again, what technically makes an artery an artery and a vein a vein? Oxygenated blood arteries and deoxygenated blood arteries. Arteries carry blood away from the heart. Oh, there we go. There you go. Arteries carry blood away from the heart and veins carry blood back to the heart. 
Now, nine times out of ten, what you said is correct, but uh, not always. A the aorta is the largest artery, and it branches into arterioles and then capillaries. And from the capillaries, they enlarge into venules and then veins and then the inferior and superior vena cava, then back to the heart in the right atrium. All right. Continuing with our review, what makes up the blood? What is the plasma? What's plasma? The fluid. It is the vehicle basically in which all these formed elements are transported through your vessels. Um, uh, the red blood cells, RBCs, what's the medical term for red blood cells? Erythrocyte, something like that, because the ERTHYR means red and site means cell. Did you have a question? Okay. They carry oxygen to the tissues, and why do the, what do the red blood cells have that allow them to carry oxygen? Hemoglobin. White blood cells, also known as what? Leukocytes, because leuco is white. They help fight infections. Uh, platelets, what, we, what can we call platelets as well? Thrombocytes, because they uh, aid in the clotting process and help to control bleeding. Again, that's very quick through all that. I'm, I'm hoping we all remember most of that. All right, the electrical conduction system of the heart. And that ain't really right. electrical conduction system of the heart. When I say to you that the heart has three intrinsic pacemakers, does anybody have a clue what I'm talking about? That's two of them. But what do they do? Mm -mm. You're on the right track though. The heart pumps in response to electrical stimulus initiated by a conduction system. Remember when we got to this, I, I talked about like your automobile engine, right? Of course, I show my age when I say, you turn the key, right? But you push the button and what happens? It initiates or it, it causes the electrical component uh, under the hood to kind of be charged, right? And that's what brings about the mechanical movement of the pistons or whatever the hell runs a motor anymore. Who knows? I don't. It's magic, I think. But y'all get the point, I hope, okay? So the heart's no different. There's an electrical component that has to cause a mechanical action, okay? The sinoatrial node or the SA node is the normal site where this impulse is a firstly, first, firstly, at first initiated. Where is the SA node located? It's in the right atrium. And it will normally fire between 60 and 100 beats per minute. 
The SA node can't really fire over 150 beats per minute, but you don't even really have to know that just now. Just know that it, it's, it is your first line intrinsic pacemaker. That means that's what's normally going to fire that's going to create eventually the heartbeat, okay? So when the SA node fires, what is created on the ECG? Anybody remember what this thing's called? It's called a P wave. That is correct. Put this one over here. And remember, when you're looking at the ECG tracing from the left to right, you're talking about the passage of time. Okay? So the SA node fires, it creates a P wave. And then the impulse spreads out and results in the ventricular contraction. Um, just forget that last little part right there. That is what creates that electrical contraction. The SA node fires. Then that impulse travels both directions through the internodal pathways down to the, does anybody remember what that node's called? That's the AV node or the atrioventricular node because this is kind of located right between the atria and the ventricles. And then it also washes over here to the left atrium to this little plexus of nerves here called the Bachman's bundle. Basically it fires, atria contracts, right? What happens to the electrical impulse at the AV node for just a fraction of a second? It's kind of held up, right? Because remember, the one, when the heart beats, it doesn't just go all at the same time, right? It's lub-dub, like it's a two-stage event. Atria contract, ventricles contract. Atria contracts, ventricles contract. Lub-dub, remember? S1, S2. S1, S2. Y'all remember? Okay. So, SA node fires. It travels through the internodal pathways down to the AV node and over to the Bachmann's bundle it's held up a split second at the Bachmann's, at the, at the AV node, atria contract, S1 or love. Then it passes on through the AV node, through the uh, bundle of his, HIS, down through the left and right bundle branches, down to the Purkinje fibers, the ventricles contract, S2 or dub, right? Well, if you hear something else, like love, dub, click, what would that be? That'd be S3. Is S3 normal? Is S4 normal? No. Should be just S1, S2, S1, S2. Love, dub, love, dub, love, dub. So, but backing on up, on over here, the, the SA node fires, it creates a what? So, and as time passes, that that impulse travels to the internodal pathways down to the AV node and over to the Bachmann's bundle, gets held up a split second, right? And goes through the bundle of his, the left and right bundle branches to Purkinje fibers, and then what happens? The ventricles contract. That's the QRS complex, or the depolarization of the ventricles. That's the ventricles contracting, right? Then what happens here? What is this? It's a T wave. It's a T wave. And that represents the repolarization of the ventricles. So it gets it 
it increases the excitability of the cells of the ventricles and gets it ready for the next P wave, right? So it can contract again. Is there anybody at all that doesn't understand that? I mean, there's no shame in the game, but I mean, tell me. All right. Electrical properties of the cardiac cell, excitability, that's the ability of the cells to respond to electrical impulses. That's what the T wave does, is, is increasing the excitability of the cells in the ventricles. When it fires, that's, what's that's what it's uh, doing or creating. Conductivity is the ability of the cells to conduct electrical impulses, and automaticity. I said the heart had one special quality. That the, that the cells of the heart has this quality that no other cell has or no other muscle has and that was automaticity right and what does that mean yeah it can create its own impulse right and that's why that's when we talked about the sad scenarios where people was in a car wreck or whatever they were in and you know, they're quote unquote brain dead in a nursing home somewhere. They're unconscious. They never come to, but their heart beats on, right? And that's because of automaticity. Right. Regulation of your heart function. The autonomic nervous system controls the heart's chronotropic, dromotropic, and inotropic state. We've talked about these, so this is review as well. What does the chronotropic state refer to? How fast is the heart beating, right? What about dromotropic? How fast this is taking place, right? And then what about inotropic? It's the contractile strength. Each time the heart beats, how hard is it actually contracting, okay? So let me ask you a question. Can you have all of this? and not have a heartbeat. Yes, you can. At, at one point in time back in the day, the old heads called that EMD. Don't write that down because that's a term that's not used anymore. But I offer it just so it, I think it helps explain what, what it really is. Electrical mechanical disassociation is what it used to be called then to me that always made more sense than what, what they, the term they use today is called PEA, pulseless electrical activity. You've got the electrical part, but them pistons aren't moving. You with me? It, there's a break in it. It's not causing them pistons to go up and down. So um, I guess just know that. Receptors usually monitor body functions to maintain homeostasis and baroreceptors respond to changes in pressure in the blood, in the blood, and chemoreceptors sense changes in the chemical composition of the blood, but you already knew that. What is preload? The amount of blood returning to the heart. Afterload? It makes sense that afterload would be the amount of blood ejected from the heart, right? But that's not really the case. Pressure in the aorta from peripheral vascular resistance against which the left ventricle must pump 
Right. It is the amount of work that the left ventricle has to create or perform in order to eject that 70 milliliters through the aortic valve and into the aorta. And it is controlled or affected by things like systemic vascular resistance. How much plaque is built up in, in those arteries, right? Because the smaller the, the inner lumen is of those vessels, the harder it is to eject that blood in it, right? Again, it gets back to simple hydraulics. So. We good with that? Does everybody understand that? Cassidy, tell me about the Starling's Law of the Heart. Hi. No thanks? Okay. Sarah Ann, Starling's Law of the Heart. Which is correct. But, but in a nutshell, remember the further the heart muscle stretches, remember the rubber band thing I did? The further the muscle stretches, the stronger the resulting contraction to a point. Because if you stretch it too far, it's, it's going to snap like that rubber band did and turn my hand red. Remember that? I do. So that's the Starling's Law. And what one word on this slide here affects Starling's Law of the Heart more than the rest of them. Preload. That's right, because more blood just returned to the heart, the further it's going to stretch out, right? To give that atrial kick. And then when it gives the atrial kick, passes it down through your uh, uh, <laughs> atrioventricular valves into the ventricles, then they stretch out even further. Does that make sense? <laughs> it says that in the lungs blood is oxygenated and carbon dioxide and other waste products are removed how's that work somebody tell me how that works diffusion in the alveoli diffusion in the alveoli and that one cell thick membrane that divides the alveoli from the capillary beds right what causes anything to move in the human body pressure gradient, pressure gradient. and you've got that one cell thick membrane that, and this is to say the capillary beds and this is your alveoli over here. You take a deep breath in, what do you think you have more of in the alveoli? Then there's more oxygen than carbon dioxide, right? But you still gonna always have just a little bit of it. And then what do you think, as blood returns from all the cells across the body and throughout the body, and, it, and, and those waste products are traveled through the vascular space and they get back to the capillary beds and the lungs, what do you think is more prevalent in the capillary beds? Okay. But you're gonna have a little bit of oxygen still because it doesn't all get consumed. So, the partial pressure of oxygen is higher in the alveoli than it is the capillary bed, right? So what happens? Oxygen comes over here. The partial pressure of carbon dioxide in the capillary bed is higher than it is in the alveoli. So what happens? It comes over here until pressures do what? 
kind of equalize, then you exhale, and what happens to the carbon dioxide? It leaves the body. What happens to the oxygen? It is now in the vascular space and it goes to all the cells so all the energy can be produced in the areas that it needs to be produced. Y'all tracking? You remember us talking about this? Okay. We've already talked about pulmonary circulation and systemic circulation. Coronary arteries. Cholesterol and fatty substances form a plaque inside of the walls of the blood vessel. And what's going to happen if that plaque builds up to the point where it occludes the coronary arteries? You have a heart attack. What's the medical term for a heart attack? Myocardial infarction. Remember, if something is ischemic, that means it's dysfunctioning because of a lack of oxygen. If it's infarcted, it's dead because of a lack of oxygen. Which one do you think you can correct? Ischemia. If it's dysfunctioning because of oxygen, a lack of oxygen, what can you do? Give it oxygen, right? But if it's dead, it's dead. It ain't gonna scab over. That's it, okay? And again, here's, you can see down here is a, as the plaque builds up, it kind of makes the inner lumen or the area inside the vessels that blood can pass through, it makes it smaller and smaller and smaller. What does that do to the left ventricle? Makes it work harder and harder and harder. That is what you call SVR, okay? Systemic vascular resistance. And that's why it increases the afterload. The left ventricle has to work harder to get it through that smaller vessel now. And what does that do to your left ventricle? It makes it work harder. It, it develops the muscle. The muscle gets bigger to the point to where it, it messes up Starling's law. And the heart becomes more and more inefficient. Because it can't stretch and then contract. What's a thromboembolism? Blood clot. Yeah. And eventually, blo listen, blood clots are bad, right? <laughs> and, and just, it depends on where it lands or where it comes out is going to dictate what type of problem and how bad the problem is. If the blood clot lands in the brain, what do we call that? Stroke. Stroke or cerebrovascular accident. I want you to think about a heart attack is like a cerebrovascular accident of the heart. It is very, very similar. It just depends on where the clot gets hung up. And if a large, if the clot's large enough to where it includes a larger vessel, that means there's more things downstream that are being deprived of oxygen, correct? So that means the stroke will be worse. The heart attack will be worse. Where's the worst place in the world to have a heart attack, would you think? Okay, but they're all in the coronary arteries, but what side of the heart would be worse? They're all bad. The left, because that's where the majority of the work is performed, right? Now you're limiting the muscle or killing a, a piece of tissue in the very part of the heart that does the most work. Therefore, you're going to see more deficits. Does that make sense? Common sense. An acute myocardial infarction or an AMI is a blockage of a coronary artery. And again, everything downstream that gets denied that oxygen 
will become ischemic and then infarct. Major controllable factors of atherosclerosis, and that's just another name for the, the plaque that builds up and the arteries get harder, um, become less, I guess, amiable to contracting and, and, and uh, dilating and contracting. Cigarette smoking. If you ever wanted to quit, today's the day. It'll never be easier than it's going to be today. High blood pressure. Uh, elevated cholesterol levels. What's the medical term for elevated cholesterol? What's the medical term for high cholesterol? <laughs> A registry may use this term. So if something is high or elevated, it's what? Hyper. What's the medical root word for fat? Condition of something in blood. Hyperlipidemia. Hyperlipidemia. Yes, I think I spelled that right, even though you can't read it. You have to trust me. Hyperlipidemia. L-I-P-I-D-E-M-I-A. And I think that's right. But that's what it's called. For real though. Cigarette smoke and high blood pressure. Hyperlipidemia. Elevated blood glucose levels. Diabetes. Now let me ask you a question. If someone's a diabetic, how might or elderly female, and everybody should write this down because you definitely need to know this to be a good EMT and they may try to trick you on a registry test. What are your two patient categories that may have atypical signs and symptoms of a myocardial infarction? Diabetics and elderly females. They don't feel pain like we do. They just don't. They may complain of shortness of breath only and be having a full-blown MI. That's a phys act. I'll trade dogs with you. So this is the two I'll trade dogs with you. Ma'am? Yes, diabetics and elderly females may have what they call silent heart attacks. They never hurt, they never complain of pain. So, diabetes, lack of exercise, a sedentary lifestyle, and stress. None of us has that, do we? Which ones are controllable? Exercise, Is cigarette smoking controllable? High blood pressure, is that controllable? Well, you might have to take some, some medicine, you know. That, uh, might, might have to resort to old chemical living, right? Elevated cholesterol, you can always control what you eat, right? I'd fail miserably at that one, by the way, but you can. Elevated blood glucose levels, can you control that? You could be a diabetic, but still control it, right? You absolutely can exercise more in stress. Sometimes. Sometimes. All right. 
acute coronary syndrome. You've heard me use a little phrase before I've said uh, or called things like umbrella terms, right? Because I said I broke with the book because that COPD was really just an umbrella term that really and there was three or four different specific conditions that fell underneath that term. Well, an acute coronary syndrome, that's a real fancy way of saying what? What do you think? Which causes? Uh, chest pain. Yeah, right there. Anything that causes chest pain. Or, some people say angina, some say angina, pectoris. They say that the same. Tomato, tomato, right? Angina pectoris. Anything that causes chest pain is considered an acute coronary syndrome. Is that always a heart attack? No, it could be angina, right? Or angina. Myocardial ischemia is the decrease in blood flow to the heart. And what will ischemia, myocardial ischemia cause? <coughs> Chest pain. Both conditions have similar signs and symptoms and treated similarly under the uh, designation of ACS, acute coronary syndrome. <clears throat> as far as you are concerned, well, let me ask you this. What is the one definitive way to diagnose someone will having a heart attack? And again, with we don't diagnose. We might do differential diagnosis or field diagnosis, we may think we know what's going on, but who really diagnoses anything? Doctor, right? How do they officially diagnose a heart attack? They do arterial blood gases. They're going to take a big old needle and they're going to root around real deep in your wrist and they're going to find an artery in your wrist because the radial artery is in there, right? There's a couple of them actually in there, but the radial artery is in there and it's very uncomfortable. And they're going to go in there and they're going to pull arterial blood. Why do they want arterial blood? Because where's it coming from? It's coming from the heart. And if heart tissue is dead or dying, it releases an enzyme called, anybody know? Troponin. So they take that big old needle and they root around in your wrist and they find an artery and they pull the blood and they run tests on it. And if troponin is located in that arterial blood, what do they know? That heart tissue has infarcted because it releases this enzyme when it does. That is the one true way to tell that someone's having a heart attack. Can we do that in the back of an ambulance? So as far as you are concerned, all chest pain is what? It's a heart attack. And you will treat it as such, and then if it turns out it's not a heart attack, then have you done anything wrong? No, but if it is a heart attack and you don't treat it as such, have you done anything wrong? Yes. Absolutely. You can literally cause somebody to have congestive heart failure. If someone is having a heart attack, 
What's the very first thing you're going to do for me? It's going to sound so simple. What's the very first thing you're going to do? That's not bad, but the very first thing you want to make sure is one, they're not walking around, right? You want them to be in the position of comfort. Now, they're not going to be truly comfortable because they're having a heart attack, but you want them as comfortable as they can be, and you want to make absolutely sure they're not walking. Why? That's true, too, but that's not what I'm looking for. That's true, too, but it's not what I'm looking for. Pretty good answers. Bam. There's what it is. That's what you're doing that could literally kill them. If they're having, they're demonstrating an inability to get oxygenated blood to all of their heart to begin with, right? Now you're walking them around. You're increasing their heart rate. And as their heart beats faster, it's demanding more what? Oxygen. And they can't get it because they're having a heart attack. Does that make sense? So what you've done is maybe you've taken a dime piece of death on that left ventricle and you've turned it into a quarter or a half dollar. You literally have thrown them into congestive heart failure for the rest of their life just by allowing them to walk and heaven forbid you don't be the one to say, you won't go to the hospital? Well, come on. They don't walk to the ambulance, y'all. They don't. And if you, I'm telling you now, I don't give a crap if you're on the scene with a thoracic surgeon. It doesn't matter. If someone's having chest pain and you're on the scene and some smart person says, well, come on. If you want to go, you better stand up. You better be a good patient advocate. You be the one to say, no, sir, no, ma'am. You keep your seat. You be comfortable. I'll go get the stretcher. Now, when the call's over, get on them because they ain't going to have much to say back to you because you'll be right, okay? Don't do it in front of the patient. You just make sure they stay comfortable. You go get the stretcher. Do not let them walk because it literally could be life or death, okay? I'm not being overly dramatic here. Nine times out of ten, what I'm saying ain't going to happen. But if it does and you allow it, you're a part of harming that patient. So don't do that, right? If I said elevate them, I... Yeah, yeah, if you do anything, if you allow them to walk or do anything that elevates their pulse rate, that's what's going to cause more damage. Okay? If you hadn't figured it out, that's a soapbox. All right, I'm on it, but I'm fixing to get off. So acute coronary syndrome, myocardial ischemia, myocardial infarction, we understanding all that? Now, once you've made them comfortable, what are you going to do for them once they're comfortable? All right? So. We know for a fact we're going to give them oxygen, right? And then somebody else said something else. Nitro. We're going to give them nitroglycerin. So what do you think the, your next quiz is going to be on? Nitroglycerin. On the, right after the albuterol in that, uh, in that table, there'll be nitroglycerin. What does nitroglycerin do? 
I don't care if you look it up in your book. How? Vasodilation. Basically, if you're having a heart attack or if you're having this acute coronary syndrome, you, you, oxygen, oxygenated blood is not passing through those coronary arteries, right? So if you've got an artery, let's say this size, that is blocked by this plaque, this arthrosclerosis or whatever, so blood can't pass through there. You give them nitro and oxygen, what, how does that help? Vasodilation, right? It makes the vessel larger. So now it's that large, blood can go around the clot. So if blood goes around the heart, uh, around the clot, travels on through, you give them oxygen, so now the blood is more oxygen enriched and it can get past the clot. Is there anything else we're gonna give these people? ASA stands for what? Acetosilic acid or aspirin. You're going to give them 324 milligrams of chewable aspirin, oxygen, sublingual nitroglycerin, one tab. So what does the aspirin do? It, not technically, but that's what everybody says. But technically it does what? It prevents those little platelets that are in the blood from coagulating and clotting together. So. Yeah, everybody says it thins the blood, but that's, it doesn't really do that, but it stops the platelets from clumping, okay, and making the clot any bigger, okay? So now the vessel's larger, it has more oxygen in it, and it, it can move around the clot easier because of the aspirin. Um, so now it's, re, it's reducing the amount of oxygen demand to the heart muscle while providing more oxygen at the same time so it works on both ends. Does that make sense? So I'm gonna ask you one more question then we'll take a little bit of a break, but what literally causes your chest to hurt when you're having a heart attack? Nope. Not really. It, sir? No, no, no. Come on. I like saying no. Somebody throw something else out there. Lack of oxygen. Lack of oxygen creates a buildup of what? Carbon dioxide. carbon dioxide. What follows carbon dioxide? Which is an acid. It's the buildup of acid on your heart muscle. So, and everything moves because of a pressure gradient. What's the best way to get rid of the acid? Deliver more oxygen. Partial pressures. Does that make sense? Y'all stretch yourself. <laughs> All right, continuing on. Um, is everybody comfortable with the term acute coronary syndrome and the fact that that just really means anything that's going to create that, that angina or that chest pain? Um, how many of y'all remember, like, the 
I guess ASVAB tests or some other, those standardized tests they gave you in school and they'd give you these questions and they'd say, uh, a tremor is to an earthquake as something else is to the color purple or whatever the hell, and you're supposed to figure it out. Y'all remember those type questions? I want you to think about when it comes to an angina or chest pain, that is literally like a tremor is to an earthquake. It's kind of predecessor or predecessor or whatever the hell. It's coming first. And if you don't change your ways, you know, you go into hell and you're going to have a heart attack too. But uh, uh, this chest pain, this angina is different than a heart attack. But the things that bring these ACS conditions along are going to bring along a heart attack in a, in a worse form, if that makes sense. Okay. So an angina is a brief period where the heart tissue is not getting enough oxygen. An angina pain or angina pain is crushing, squeezing. It's felt in the mid-chest, under the sternum. Where's the heart at? Mid-chest, kind of under the sternum. Uh, can radiate to the jaw, the arms, the mid-back, or down to the epigastrium. Can a heart attack do that? Absolutely. It sounds real similar, don't it? How, all right, we've already said if you're having chest pain, as far as you're concerned, they're having a heart attack, right? And you really always need to function with that, that thought process. <clears throat> if they're having an angina and they sit down and rest, or maybe they take a nitro, the pain might go away. But you're not going to sit around on the scene waiting for the pain to go away, right? You, that's a priority patient. You're going to be off the scene in 10 minutes, as long as they consent, obviously. But um, why is it that the pain goes away when they sit down and rest? Therefore, reducing oxygen demand of the heart, and the heart rate slows. So it can deliver that reduced amount, right, as long as they're at rest. But once they start doing things, like if, let's say you, someone knows they have angina, so they have these nitroglycerin tablets that the doctor gave them. And a stable angina means they can predict or they know when their chest is going to start hurting. Like, well, I know uh, I can cut my front lawn out here, but if I don't sit down and rest before I cut the back, my chest is going to start hurting, right? That's stable, it's predictable. They know what's going to happen and they could do things. When it becomes unstable is when they get halfway through that front lawn and uh-oh, it's moved, it's changed, something's happened, right? So that's the difference between stable and unstable and that is why when they sit down and rest, the pain will subside or they take a nitro, the pain subsides. Your flag needs to go up a little bit higher when they say, when you get on the scene and they say, I've got angina or whatever, but I'm resting and nothing's making it better. It's there. I took my nitro. It's not getting better. The, the pain of an MI is constant and steady. Nothing's going to make it better. Nothing's going to make it worse. Okay? It is there. They took their nitro. It's still there. Okay? And also, and everybody write this down. If someone's having angina 
their pulse will be regular. If registry gives you a scenario where someone has chest pain and an irregular pulse, that's going to be an MI. Now, I'm not telling you everybody having an MI will have an irregular pulse. That's not what I'm saying. But if the pulse is irregular, coupled with chest pain, that's an MI. Does that make sense? Not everybody having a heart attack. It depends on what? Where the death is, right? What if you think the death is getting closer to, say, the SA node? You think that might affect the regularity of the heartbeat? Sure. Stable angina occurs at relatively fixed frequency. Unstable occurs without a fixed frequency. And progressive angina means that it's changing, it's coming on faster, it's getting worse. That's another tremor, right? That second or third tremor. Frequency like pulse rate? Just how often it happens. How predictable is it, too, you know? The pain of an acute myocardial infarction signals the actual death of the cells. They are infarcting. It's hurting. Because um, blood flow is obstructed. It's not getting the oxygen. Acid's building up. It's dying. Angioplasty. Medical root word angio. Plasty, surgical repair of the vessels. That's when they go in there with those little stents. And basically, they run a piece of plastic in your vessel that is going to basically, and no, I'm not an artist, but it's going to hold that vein or vessel open and open <laughs> above and beyond the clot. or PCI, percutaneous coronary intervention. That's what they do in the cath labs, right? They go in there, depending on how large it is, where it's at, and what facility you're at, just like with a stroke, they might could go in there and just grab the clot and pull it out. Or they may give you a fibrinolytic medication, uh, Alteplase, that's what I was trying to think of. Alteplase or uh, um, um, TPA, which will dissolve the clot depending on the size of it. And again, the facility that you're at. Signs and symptoms of an acute myocardial infarction, sudden onset of weakness, nausea, and sweating. Now, and you got, everything's relative, right? If you show up to the scene, somebody's been out splitting firewood in July in the yard, is it possible that they'll be sweaty and that'll be normal? Sure. But if you come to someone's home in the middle of the night, okay, and they're sitting up in their bed and their skin is pale, cool, diaphoretic, and they're sweating, I mean literally pouring sweat off their face, AC's jacked down to 62, and the pain woke them up from a dead sleep, does that not paint a whole different picture? It should. Chest pain, discomfort, or pressure. They'll, sometimes they'll say it's like an elephant sitting on their chest. Irregular heartbeat and syncope. What does that mean? They passed out. 
shortness of breath, dyspnea, might be coughing up pink, frothy sputum. That's blood-tinged mucus is all that is. And about 37% of people who have a heart attack go ahead and slide off into cardiac arrest, which is altogether different. The, the two are not synonymous. They're not the same, okay? You can have a heart attack, and most people, in fact, have a heart attack and don't die. Just a little piece of tissue. They may have deficits the rest of their life, and I'm not making light of that, but I'm saying the two things are different, okay? Most common symptom is chest pain. Why do you think they appear frightened? Because they are. <laughs> There's going to be a sense of impending doom. A lot of times they'll look at you and they'll say, I think I'm going to die. And they're serious. Don't ever take that for granted. Don't say, damn dog, you might. <laughs> I mean, don't say nothing like that. Because what's that going to do to their pulse rate? Jack it up. But don't, I mean, just understand, it's weird. The human animal knows these things sometimes. I'm just saying it. I ain't trying to be freaky or nothing. But just uh, they appear frightened because they are. There will be a sense of impending doom. The pulse rate's going to increase because of the fear, because of the uncomfortableness. Blood pressure eventually will fall, but it may fall even initially depending on where that death is, right? Again, I keep saying the same things, but where do you think that infarct may be that will initially affect blood pressure? Left side of the heart. Side of the heart. It will have a direct effect on the inotropic properties of that heart, right? Difficulty breathing. Overwhelming feeling of impending doom. They could die if they make it through. They go into cardiogenic shock. The pump is so ineffective that you start seeing signs and symptoms of shock, right? And then heart failure long term. And again, a lot of times, that heart, the, the degree of heart failure that they wind up with, I mean, it could very easily be dictated by how you treat them on the scene. So keep that in mind. We good with that? Did I say that too fast? Other lethal and non-lethal dysrhythmias, tachycardia, what does that mean? Fast heartbeat, but it's a heartbeat over 100 times a minute. Tachycardia is a pulse rate over 100 times a minute. It's tachycardia. Bradycardia, a slow heartbeat, and it is bradycardia is 60 or less. A pulse rate of 60 or less is bradycardia. Ventricular tachycardia. What does that mean? Why 150, you think? It's over normal. Normal for what? The SA node. The SA node can't really fire over 150 times a minute. So with things like ventricular tachycardia, the SA node's not firing. That's not what's creating that heartbeat. It's not the AV node. It's the ventricles. It's the Purkinje fibers or that third intrinsic pacemaker. Okay? But it's going really, really fast. Ventricular tachycardia, does it have a pulse? 
Raise your hand if you say yes. Has a pulse? Yeah. Raise your hand if you say no. It could be either way. You've got pulseless VTAC or VTAC with a pulse. How are you going to know the difference? Check the pulse. <laughs> and if they're saying, whoo, my heart beating fast, <coughs> you probably ain't got to check a pulse, right? Ventra, VTAC, ventricular tachycardia with a pulse and without a pulse. And then ventricular fibrillation, does it have a pulse? No. If it does, he's probably like a warlock or something. That's that heart quivering, right? And it does not generate a, a pressure wave through the vessels. It does not have a pulse. So you got VTAC and pulseless VTAC. You have V-fib, you have A-systole, and what was that other one I told you about that was the uh, electrical activity but no mechanical beating in the heart? PEA, remember pulseless electrical activity. Which ones are shockable rhythms? PEA is not. Not shockable. Is asystole shockable? No. Yeah, there's a story to that. Asystole is not shockable unless you're in the hospital in Lagrange. Is V-fib shockable? Yes. Is pulseless V-tac shockable? Yes. yes. Those are your two shockable rhythms. With an AED or if, or if you have a paramedic on the scene, the cardiac monitor. So, so how many of y'all live in LaGrange or go to the hospital in LaGrange? All right, so let me just tell you this story so you're not thinking that I'm like hating on LaGrange so much. But when I was in paramedic school, I had to do my clinical rotations. I had to do them at the hospital in LaGrange. And they told us that if, if we hear Doctor 99 over the intercom and then a number, that means that there's a cardiac arrest in the hospital at, in that particular room and as a paramedic student, I should come running, right? So I could learn something, right? So I'm doing my business in the emergency room and I hear Doctor 99, 248, or whatever the number was, because I don't remember. So I go up to room 248 and there's a lady laying in the bed and um, there's a room full of people standing around her. There's a guy with a drug box broke open. There's the anesthesiologist, and he, he's got the endotracheal tube in his hand, and he's ready to innovate her. And they're just kind of standing there, and I'm like, what are we doing? And they said, we're waiting on the doctor. I was like, okay, well, look here. I'm going to go ahead and start some chest compressions. While, I mean, a room full of people, and I'm like, they're going to throw me out. But I started doing compressions, and the minute the doctor come in, and doctor's going through the history, and he's like, you push some epi, and push some atropine, what's the monitor showing? And the monitor, when we looked at it, just had a flat line. What's that called? That's asystole, or flat line. And the doctor said, you're a paramedic student, right? And I said, yes, sir. He said, is asystole shockable? I said, no, sir. A Sicily is not shockable. He said, wrong. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm thinking, 
whew, I need to get up out of here quick as I can. <laughs> so I can do, start doing my compressions again a little bit later. He said, Mr. Paramedic student, what's on the monitor? I said, it's still a systole, doc. He said, is that shockable? I said, no, sir, it's still not shockable. He said, wrong. Pow, popped her again. Well, a few minutes later, he called the code, and I'm like, okay, I'm done with this. And I go, start to leave. He said, oh, don't leave, don't leave. He said, why did I shock that woman twice when she was an asystole? I said, doc, I don't know. He said, did you see us do several rounds of epi and atropine and we checked into any possible reversible causes of her asystole? And I said, yes, sir, you did all that just fine. He said, you can't hurt dead, son. He said, and how did I know that wasn't very fine V-fib? We did everything else we could for the lady. So we were just trying something. So I say, asystole is not shockable unless you're in the hospital in LaGrange. But that doctor did, did me the best favor anybody's ever done for me in this field because it taught me right then and there that you got your algorithms, you got things you're supposed to do, but damn it, don't stop thinking. You know what I mean? You can't hurt dead. Try to help them. So somebody that I thought was a quack turned out to be uh, probably one of the bigger influencers on me as far as my paramedic career. You have to think, don't ever stop thinking. Anyhow, so that's why a Sicily shockable in LaGrange. <laughs> All right, but nowhere else. Uh-oh. Previous. Previous. And here we go. What are we looking at right here? Sinus tachycardia. Sinus tachycardia. If it is sinus, if, for, if it is a sinus rhythm, that means that it is being generated by the SA node. Okay, if it's sinus tachycardia, that means the heart beats over how many beats a minute? A hundred, but it's still originating. It has a P wave. It's originating from the SA node, sinus tachycardia. So what is that? Sinus bradycardia. You see these tick marks on ECG tracing? You count the QRS complexes between those tick marks and multiply by 10. And that's how you can count the pulse rate by looking at the ECG. So that would be what? Just between 20? 20. Well, it's probably 30, 40, roughly, but it's still slower than 60 either way, right? It's a quick little way. What do you think that is? Do you see a P wave in that? No. So where's that coming from? It's not coming, it's not originating. Yeah, it's not originating in the, in the SA node, right? What do those things kind of look like? But not really. <laughs> Bees. Huh? Bees. I'm not a clue what you're saying. A bee. I don't look like no bee. <laughs> it, what do you think it is? Ventricular tachycardia. VTAC, that's right. Ventricular tachycardia because it's not coming from a P wave. And how many times? That's one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Which that ain't really right, because that would only be seventy. What I told you is accurate and correct. You count the QRSs between the tick marks and multiply by ten. That is ventricular tachycardia. Is that shockable? As long as as long as you don't have a pulse. What is this? Ventricular fibrillation. Is that shockable? Absolutely. 
Majority of adult patients who go into cardiac arrest are initially in V-fib. That is why AEDs are so necessary. That's why they have them all over the place. The one on the bottom, <coughs> asystole. Is asystole shockable? Yeah. Only in LaGrange. And not on your National Registry test, okay? <laughs> it is not shockable. Asystole is not shockable. <laughs> all right. So cardiogenic shock, it is often caused by what? Myocardial infarction. That, that, there's enough death, and you typically on the left side, that the heart is now beating so inefficiently that it's not getting oxygenated blood where it needs to. These people will probably develop what? They're in cardiogenic shock because of an acute myocardial infarction. They'll probably live with what for the rest of their life? No. Congestive heart failure, depending on where it's at, but right or left. Heart rate, peripheral edema. What is peripheral edema? Swelling in the extremities. Pretty much the feet, right? Jugular venous distension, veins, I guess, because if you have JVD, where do you think the heart attack is probably, the right or the left? Why do you say the left? Where's the, man, don't be changing your mind. Yeah, because it, it, if the left, side of the heart's having a, a problem, right? It's having an MI. The blood is coming from where to enter the left side of the heart. It's just it's the same reason why fluid backs up into the lungs with left-sided heart failure. It's backing up into the, uh, the jugular veins because the left side is, uh, I guess, being is in the process of dying or at least a part of it. So that's why you have the, the uh, JVD. Crackles on auscultational breath sounds, again, probably looking at the left side. Anxiety, restlessness, air hunger, pulse rate will be elevated, rapid breathing, and again, if it's bad enough, the shock is eventually going to reduce the blood pressure. Position the patient comfortably, right? Make sure they're comfortable. Administer oxygen. And again, it says you want to maintain their, their SpO2 at 94%, at least 94%, right? Assist ventilations if their breathing is inadequate and we're not doing IVs yet, so don't worry about that. What's another name for right side heart failure? Core pulmonale. Heart failure occurs when the ventricular myocardium can no longer keep up with the return flow of the blood from the atria. And again, uh, heart attacks are the main reason why people develop congestive heart failure regardless of the side. Right-sided heart failure. Uh, fluid collects in the body, right? In the feet, the hands. What did I say that was called? If the feet are swollen and you squeeze them 
and you let go and your fingerprints, the indentions stay? Pitting edema, that's correct. And there's a name for it if it's in the abdomen. Ascites, A-S-C-I-T-I-E-S. So if someone, if you get dispatched to difficulty breathing and you get to their house, a little old man, little old lady, whatever, they're sitting in the chair having difficulty breathing, they have a cardiac history and their feet and ankles are swollen. What do you know without even asking? They have congestive heart failure. Probably right side, core pulling out. Right-sided heart failure, orthopenia, what did we say that meant? Difficulty breathing while lying flat on their back. Agitated, uh, neck veins distended, swollen ankles, accessory muscle usage, crackles in the lungs, productive cough, delayed capillary refill. Now, the crackles, the fluids in the lung, we're talking about right-sided here, not left-sided, right? But again, remember, even though the initial onset of signs and symptoms is going to be a little bit different, but I told you that everything's still truly connected, right? If it's bad enough, you're going to start seeing some overlap of the signs and symptoms. This is one thing that we did not look. Indications. When is nitro indicated? Chest pain. You know, an acute coronary syndrome. Someone's having chest pain. So nitro is indicated. But when would it be contraindicated? Do I? If they are hypotensive, you will not give it to them. If their systolic pressure is 100 or less, you will not give them nitro. Why? It's kind of important. and they will, they could die, <laughs> so that's important. If they're already hypotensive and you give them a vasodilator, what's that gonna to do to the pressure? It's gonna reduce it even further, right? That's why a lot of paramedics will be very, very, very nervous for anybody to give a patient nitro without an e, a 12 lead EKG being ran because they wanna know where the heart attack's at before they do that. Because if it's on the right side of the heart, or in the lower, especially right lower, it's more likely to cause that blood pressure to bottom out. But what you need to know for now is they get nitro as long as they are not hypotensive. You give it to them, what's your goal? Why are you giving them the nitro? You're wanting to reduce what? The pain, because the pain does what to the heart rate? It increases it. You're putting them in a position of comfort, you're giving them oxygen, you're giving them nitrates because you're trying to dilate the vessel so blood can flow around that clot and you can stop building up lactic acid and the pain goes away. That's the goal, okay? And you can administer nitro up to three times every three to five minutes. Once, check blood pressure, as long as they're still good, you can give another one three to five minutes later, which is two. As long as the blood pressure is good, three to five minutes, you can give a third one, right? 
Uh, that's that's kind of standard, but uh, the goal is to alleviate the pain, and um, therefore help, help kind of help the heart attack. But when is it contraindicated? Let me ask you a question. How do you know? You give somebody nitro, where do you, what's the route of administration? How do you typically give it to them? Sublingual, under the tongue. Now, the, some people have a nitro paste, and you'll, it'll be like a little paste that they'll smear on a piece of paper and tape it to their chest, but you don't see that that often anymore. Some people have nitro spray. They'll spray under their tongue. One spray is equivalent to one tablet. Um, but usually you have the little tablets. They put it under their tongue and it'll fizz. Has it'll give like a little fizz sensation. And if the nitro is still good, so to speak, what might they complain of a couple minutes later? Headache. Terrible headache. Because the vasodilation that the nitro causes will give them a headache. That's really a good sign for them whether they realize it or not. Nitro is sensitive to light. That's why it's in a little brown glass bottle. Light will kind of render it ineffective. And what's going to happen if you take the nitro and dump it in your hand to give to them? You're going to get a headache. So you better have your PPEs on then too. Any questions about that? So what's your quiz going to be on next class? And aspirin, nitro and aspirin. Come on. We've already talked about preload and afterload. Quit. All right, this thing's aggravating me now. Hypertensive emergencies, high blood pressure, right? Hypertensive emergencies occur uh, with a systolic pressure of greater than 180 millimeters of mercury. MM capital HG is millimeters of mercury. Don't ask me how. But 180 systolic is a hypertensive crisis. or diastolic pressure of 120. 180, 120, hypertensive crisis. That sounds like something they'd ask you on a test. Position the patient with their head elevated. Transport them emergency status to the, to the uh, ED, and we're not doing IVs yet. All right. Aortic aneurysm. What is that? What is a triple A? That's some people who come pick you up if you have a flat tire or something, right? <laughs> but it's also weakness in the wall of the aorta. Now, aortic kind of comes out of the top of the heart, right? You have the aortic arch, and it arches and it comes back down and runs midline through the abdomen. Uh, an aortic aneurysm 
or a, a, when it becomes a dissecting aneurysm, that's because of usually long-term uncontrolled hypertension. The blood starts to force itself between the walls of the aorta. What are the different walls of your arteries that we've talked about in chapter 7? Yeah. Tunica. Tunica. Adventia. Tunica. Media. And tunica. Intima. Right? With the blood, because of the elevated blood pressures, it starts to force itself between those layers. So that part of the aorta will balloon out like a balloon. Okay? Um, and first A stands for what? Okay, so right midline in their abdomen. There might be a little area that's kind of bulged out. And if you touch it ever so slightly, I mean, ever so slightly, you'll feel a heartbeat in it. Boop, boop, boop. Now, what happens if you push it real hard? They pop and they never see the emergency room. They will bleed to death in minutes, okay? So don't do that. Alright, so anybody having chest pain, obviously you're going to perform a thorough assessment. You, you look at their chest and you see a zipper, right, a scar right here. Do you have to ask them if they have a cardiac history? No, you kind of know it at that point, but you want to know what it was and how long ago it was, right? But it kind of rules out the guesswork. Form your general impression, uh, you know, do your physical exam. Of course, your primary survey, ABCs, right? And again, you're definitely going to be listening for crackles. You're going to be listening for uh, rails, ronchi in the fields. It's fluid building up. You're looking at the neck. Do you see that JVD, right? We're not doing CPAP yet, so don't worry about it. Get your history. Have you ever had a heart attack or been told you have heart problems? Do you have diabetes or any other problems with your blood sugar? What might be one of the best times to ask that question? If they're having shortness of breath, maybe skin's pale, cool, diaphoretic, a little bit of nausea, but not complaining of what? Right, so that'd be, because they, they suffer, they feel heart attacks differently sometimes. Ask them about smoking, high blood pressure. Of course, nobody has a stressful lifestyle. Reassess other every five or fifteen. We're not doing IVs yet. You're gonna give them nitro as long as what? And they are not hyper sensitive. Yes. Hypersensitivity contraindicates everything. Um, and again, follow your protocols, but you just need to know. And you give nitro how many times? Every three to five minutes apart, as long as the blood pressure allows. What else are you going to give them? Now, what does your book say as far as the dose of aspirin? Because this is going to be funny. 325 milligrams. And that's wonderful. And if you can actually do that, you are my hero.
because chewable aspirin comes in 81 milligram tablets. Do the math. That means you give them four of them units, right? And that's 324 milligrams. I don't know. So if on the test, if you see 325, that's probably the answer they want you to give. But in the real world, uh, it's going to be 324, chewable. Because you don't really want to give them water to swallow anything with, right? Because what goes hand in hand with a heart attack? Well, nausea, vomiting. You give them water, they vomit, aspirate, and it just goes downhill from there, right? Chewable aspirin. <laughs> what do you think his history is? Who gets an implanted pacemaker? Not necessarily. A lot of times, but not always. Yeah, but a pacemaker. What does that sound like? What do you think that's doing? Uh, their heartbeat because of either an MI or some other disease process or whatever, their heartbeat gets really, 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 really slow. Okay? And they have to get something implanted that'll pop that heart. And it's usually pacemakers will probably fire about 72 beats a minute. Don't know why, but that's just what they're always set at. But basically, like a normal ECG, you'll see this, right? Well, the SA node's not firing. That's why the heart rate is so slow. So they'll get an implanted pacemaker, and what you'll see is just a flat line, and you'll see a downward line. And then you'll see the, the, the uh, QRS. It's called a pacing spike. It'll be just a line right before every QRS complex, and they'll have a little bulged out area under their skin, right here on the left side of their chest typically, and you know that's a pacemaker, okay? What did you say that line was called? It's a pacing spike. Jacking me up here.